And welcome in to this week's episode of Broadcaster Hour. I'm Roger Hoover with you from South Carolina. We've got Kyle Crooks from Florida. And in the center of the screen from Chicago, Illinois, we have Wayne Randazzo of not only the New York Mets, Big Ten Network, Fox Sports, Sports USA. Am I leaving out any outlets? Maybe the Rain Delay Theater podcast. We also have to give them a credit, don't we? Uh, yeah, we can we can give uh, Rain Delay Theater uh, credit. SNY, you know, they, they give me some games. I You know, it's... Uh, you know, even as you move along, you still find yourself kind of freelancing in some other avenues and, and trying to find uh, to do as many games as you can wherever. So um, I'm not quite at the stage where I once was, where I think one year I had, I did my taxes and I had like 10 different envelopes uh, to go through. Not quite at that stage anymore, but still, uh, still a handful. Certainly is, and we continue having former Southern League announcers on the podcast. Of course, you were in Mobile for a long time, and that's where I got to meet you. Just uh, what is it like just reflecting back to the journey you've had to this point, getting to the major leagues after uh, getting your start in minor league baseball? It's interesting. I, I think, you know, I, I always believed I could get to the big leagues from, from doing minor league ball, but, you know, as I kind of look back on it, I just feel like, you know, I just got really lucky along the way to to have the opportunities to get there. Um, you know, there are a lot of good broadcasters in the Southern League, a lot of good broadcasters throughout minor league baseball who don't uh, end up advancing to the major leagues. And you know, a lot of it was circumstantial, and a lot of it, you know, if even now you you hear young broadcasters trying to get into it and what to do and. Well, the two things that I did were minor league baseball and, and sports updates. And, you know, both of those things are, are really subsiding. You know, minor league baseball this year doesn't exist at all. And when it does come back next year, it's going to look vastly different. And sports updates around the country are pretty much going away. So, you know, the two ways that I broke in and got a lot of opportunities and repetitions, you know, they don't really exist anymore. So, uh, and internships don't really exist anymore. So, you know, a lot of the ways that I would have suggested to someone to get in a few years ago, now you kind of have to find different ways to get in. And I think, you know, what you guys are doing is these podcasts and, and that sort of thing is, you know, just get some opportunities and, and reps talking into a microphone and, and doing some of that stuff um, that that didn't exist a few years ago that now might be a way to push forward. Wayne, where did the passion for you start in this? Was it back in college? Was it in high school, growing up, listening to baseball, basketball, football on the radio, watching on television? Where did it all generate for you? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was really at a young age. I was, uh, you know, growing up in Chicago and had access to two baseball teams. And, um, you know, Harry Carey really was at that point near the end of his life and his career. But you know, it was he made Cubs games so much fun to watch. You know, he was uh, he was in it no matter what every day. And you know, the Cubs when you're young, you don't really even you don't even really realize why a team is bad or why a team isn't going to succeed. You just believe that it's a new game and they have a chance to win. And it's a new season and they have a chance to uh, win a division that year. And I think Harry kind of perpetrated that that it was that was possible. Even though, you know, you probably look back, you know, you go into this baseball season or normal baseball season, you can kind of predict who's going to be good and who's going to make the playoffs. And you might be wrong on a few teams. You get most of them right. And, you know, when you're a kid, though, you think your team's going to make the playoffs. So uh, and I think Harry seemed to act like a kid and believe that as well. So, you know, he made those Cubs games fun every day, whether they were in it or not in it. It didn't even matter. And 
I thought his passion and his inspiration for, for the way that he treated the game was, was something that I wanted to follow. And as I got a little bit older, you know, guys that I respected as, as broadcasters, Tom Brenneman when he came through uh, the Cubs, when Pat Hughes got there, John Rooney with the White Sox, you know, there were some really good broadcasters around and uh, guys that I started to admire. And, and, and that was always seemingly the avenue that I wanted to go into. And once you graduate college, what are those first few years, your first job in minor league baseball in Mobile and AA? So that's a pretty big place to start. And I read a story and I think it was 07, you went down to the winter meetings and that's how you're able to, you know, shake some hands, network and able to land that first job at Mobile. Um, just trying to network and getting your name out there those first couple of years. What was that like for you? Yeah, it was, you know, it was intense. I was pretty aggressive. Uh, I tried to obviously stay local in the Chicago market and reached out to a lot of people there. And I think that networking that I did early on eventually landed me uh, with 670 to score. You know, I used to reach out to Mitch Rosen all the time. I probably reached out to him for four or five years before he got me in over there and gave me a job doing updates. So, um, you know, it was it was all about just trying to meet people and talk to people. I, I remember reaching out to WGN when I was uh, a junior in college and, and bugging Mike Farron for an internship over there, which which he gave me eventually um, in the spring of 2005. I interned, I wasn't even 21 yet, and I interned at GN and uh, was helping, you know, edit and do some highlights for the Cubs broadcasts and uh, helped a lot on the sports talk show that David Kaplan and Tom Waddle hosted on GN those days. So, um, you know, it was, it was a lot that I did early on, and I got my first job right after that internship. So I was still in college. I was working for a place called the Illinois Radio Network. I did updates and I was going to school and all that. So I was I was trying to also work at the college radio station so I could broadcast games. And I did summer collegiate ball my senior year of college. So I was very busy. I mean, I was working probably 20 hour days between school and my job and whatever else I could pick up. So um, yeah, I delivered pizza too. I was fitting that in. So it was uh, it was just something that I was working kind of tirelessly on to make sure that I was in a good spot when I got out of college, and then I, I got a couple of job offers, but I didn't take them because I knew I wanted to go to the winter meetings to see uh, if I could get a baseball job, and yeah, I ended up talking to a lot of people at the winter meetings just because uh, I thought if I could just go up to these people, they were there, so uh, I went up to as many of them as I could. And ended up with you know a handful of different job offers, and you know Mobile just kind of happened to be the best one. It was a number one job. I got a lot of number two offers, but Mobile, even though they were advertising looking for a number two, that wasn't exactly honest because they knew that their guy uh, Tim Haggerty was leaving and probably going to Portland, which he did, and then that opened up the number one job there. So. Um, you know, it was a, a good fit for me. It was double A, and I just wanted to get uh, as far up and, and do as many innings as I could. You know, I had a similar situation in, in Hickory um, in North Carolina, and, you know, basically just chose Mobile because it was a higher level and, and a bigger town and, and uh, decided to go there, and it was great. I've heard you say before that you really feel like your first year with the Bay Bears was one of the toughest years you could have possibly had. Kind of what made it so tough, and then what made uh, your climb out of that and having better years in Mobile possible? Yeah, I mean, it was really, you know, it was the first job I ever had to do that every day. 
um, you know, I was I was learning how to do it. You know, I, I remember many people saying it took, takes probably three to five hundred minor league games to really feel like you have a handle on it, and I, I thought that was a hundred percent accurate. Um, you know, the first year the team was really bad. There were very few prospects, very few guys that made it even got a sniff of the major leagues from that team. My first year in two thousand eight. I think a few guys just got a got a couple of call ups and and that was about it. You know, usually on a double A team, you know, five or six guys are going to make it. And a couple of them will make an impact, and uh, you know, there's certainly prospects on every team, but this team was devoid of all of that. Um, it, it was coming off that was 2008 and 2007. Mobile had Mark Reynolds and Justin Upton and Max Scherzer and Carlos Gonzalez. Eventually, when I was there, Mobile ended up with Paul Goldschmidt and Adam Eaton and Trevor Bauer and all these great pitchers and players, uh, guys who, who made huge impacts in the major leagues. So it was kind of a transition period for the Diamondbacks uh, farm system where they just kind of had graduated a bunch of guys, had a bunch of others low level, but then at the higher levels, they just didn't really have much. So um, the team lost a lot of games. They they really weren't a, a, a very good group of people to be around. And it was my first year on top of that. So I, I didn't really know what I was doing. And, um, you know, it just all kind of just made it to be a, a, a tough year. But, you know, as, as I went on, I was much more comfortable. Even on opening day, my second year, I could already feel uh, a much different comfort level than I had what, when I left from the first season. So I, I felt like things started to go better in that second year. You know, the team was better. Um, I, I was more comfortable, and and things were were headed in the right direction. And you know, I ended up doing four seasons there. They they won the championship my fourth year, my final year in Mobile. And you know, at that point, it was it was time to go and and see what else I could do. And that's when I moved back to Chicago, and you know, things started to work out from there. But you know, I cherished uh, my time in Mobile. It was uh, it was a good place to to just learn. I think that. You know, young broadcasters need that kind of low stakes opportunity to to get their feet wet, and that was for me it was Mobile. And in Mobile, you got to be in the Southern League, and kind of every league has its unique fraternity of broadcasters. But that can especially be said for the Southern League when you look at the longevity of some of the announcers. And then, even in your four years, a lot of people have gone on to bigger and better things: Major League Baseball, top college sports, TV as well. Just what did you learn from your fellow broadcasters in the Southern League? Yeah, it was an interesting mix because my first year in the league, I was by far and away the youngest broadcaster in the league. The second youngest was Ben Ingram, who's now in Atlanta with the Braves, and Ben was six or seven years older than me, so I was clearly the youngest guy in the league. Uh, and most of the guys were older. It was it was Larry Ward who'd been in Chattanooga forever. It'd been Kurt Bloom who'd been in Birmingham for many many years. Uh, you know, Mick Gillespie, who kind of started a little bit later into broadcasting. He hadn't been in Tennessee that long, but he was he was older than me. Um, you know, just just everybody in the league seemed like they they'd been at it for a while. Ron Potesta was uh, in in West Tennessee uh, with the with the Jackson Generals there, and you know, Ron had been around a long time. So uh, it was a great group. I mean, they everybody in that league, I enjoyed being around. Jim Toko was still in Montgomery. He had been kind of the up-and-coming rising star of that league for a while. Um, J.P. Shadrick in Jacksonville, who now works with the Jaguars, uh, just a, one of the best guys in the industry and, and really good. And, and you know, they, 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 we had a lot of good people come through. John Laser 
um, is now at Virginia Tech. JP with the Jaguars, like mentioned, Ben, Joe Davis came in the league a couple of years after me and usurped me as the youngest broadcaster uh, in the in the Southern League. You know, the funny thing about the two of us being the two youngest broadcasters in the Southern League, last season we were the two youngest full-time big league play-by-play announcers. So we still have maintained this somehow. And Joe uh, Joe's younger than me, but uh, we were the two youngest guys. I think, I think uh, the guy Baltimore hired, Jeff Arnold, is, is younger than us. So uh, he's the new, uh, the new youngest guy in, in baseball. But uh, it's just funny how that worked out. Joe and me are very good friends, and, you know, we uh, – you know, we were in Montgomery and Mobile, respectively, and, you know, to be where we are now, Los Angeles and New York, and doing what we're doing, I don't think we could have ever envisioned that. I mean, that would have been the ultimate pipe dream at, at that point in the Southern League. But, you know, I learned a lot from all those guys. I still talk to a lot of those guys, and, and they still, uh, you know, they still, some of them are still grinding. Some of them have, have moved on and gotten some great opportunities, but, uh, you know, I'll never forget you know, those years in the, in the Southern League and, and some of the guys that I was around that really helped make me become a lot better. While at Mobile, how often were you listening back to your stuff? When we talked to Joe Davis, he said that he was constantly, every single night, listening back to every single pitch of every single game. And that can become monotonous in a 140-game season. But uh, how much did you use that as a tool, going back, listening every single night? Or was that something that maybe you just every once in a while you— you would critique your work. Yeah, I went back and listened quite a bit. Um, you know, Bill Shanahan who ran the team in Mobile. He was he tried to be very innovative, and some of it worked, some of it didn't. But we, he had this uh, like cable channel that he somehow got access to, and he he envisioned the broadcast being on twenty four hours a day, basically. So I would be able to go back home and watch this channel, which was just uh, a scoreboard of the game and just some still pictures and listen to the broadcast that way. So I really didn't have to go very far to, to find it. Uh, I mean, I'm the one who, who you know orchestrated the channel for the most part. So I was able to listen a lot. I, I listened quite a bit. I liked listening to the highlights and I liked you know going back to hearing some things that I either liked or didn't like. You know, Joe always had a different kind of lever than, than most people. I heard Jed Hoyer the Cubs general manager talking about Theo Epstein once and Jed referred to himself and a couple other guys, Ben Sherrington, some of the others around Theo's atmosphere. And he said, you know, we're all pretty good and we're all successful in baseball and, and we know what we're doing. And then there's Theo who's just on a different wavelength. He's on a different planet than the rest of us. And, and we just can never, even if we wanted to be what Theo is because of the, the playing field that he's on. And that's Joe. You know, I, I feel like I've done really well and I've had a good career to this point and have had a lot of success and I'm happy where I'm at. Uh, but Joe has always been on a different different wavelength. You know, he was he was never not going to be successful because of the way that he operated. And a lot of it had to do with that with that rigidity of listening to himself every single day. Joe would Joe would always be finding ways um, to, to improve or to get better. I think he's calmed from that a little bit now that he has gotten to a certain point. But, uh, you know, back then, there was no one who worked harder than Joe. How, do you, how much do you credit now to where you are in moving from Mobile and going back home 
being in I, Chicago, I guess, is what the third biggest market in the country behind New York and L.A. And just having that visi- visibility, not necessarily having those play by play reps every single day, but being on the station of a major league team, being in you know the vision and in the ears of decision makers. How much do you credit that move back home to where you are now? It was huge. It was huge. I, you know, I, I have not been on the score as a as an employee in now over five years, but um, I'll still get people. I'll still run into people in Chicago. We're like, hey, I remember you on the score, and I, I I heard you on there. I mean, it was, you know, when you look at the ratings, I almost feel like the ratings don't tell the the whole story because the score's ratings are good. I mean, it's a, it's a it's a highly listened to station, but the way that, that I feel like the percentage of the people that I know that have heard me on there. I mean, it felt like you were talking to the whole city. It felt like the entire city was listening at one time or another. It was almost surprising to come across someone who hadn't heard the score or hadn't listened at some point, um, because it was such a it was such a huge station in the city and had such a wide ranging reach. And you know, if you if you were a Bears fan who and who isn't in Chicago, you turned on the score, especially after a game, especially after the Bears lost a game. It seemed like we're, there were even more listeners for a Bears loss than there were for a Bears win. Um, you know, the, the two baseball teams, the Bulls and the Blackhawks winning a couple of championships while I was at the score. So, um, you know, I, I just feel like that Chicago sports is a, is a huge thing here. And, and the score had, has done such a great job for now three decades carrying, um, you know, the way that they do. So it was it was huge for me to be on that station. And, you know, when I wasn't planning to work another minor league baseball job when I went back to work at the score. I was just planning to kind of freelance and figure it out. But, you know, the Kane County Cougars in the Midwest League had just lost their announcer right as I came back. And, you know, I applied for it. And I know that the score being on that station was a huge reason why I got that job. So I was able to still do minor league baseball, still work pretty much every game for Kane County, at least those first couple of years, and then, you know, get back and do updates and host shows at the score when I could. So, now, you know, it, was, it kept me busy, but, you know, it was a great opportunity to still get those baseball reps, still do play-by-play, and have that exposure being on, on 670 to score. Wayne, how do you really feel like you networked during your time in minor league baseball, whether with Mobile or Kane County? And then as you start to do things in a major market once again, just how did that help you network into where you eventually landed with the Mets? Yeah, you know, the Mets job, I got an agent and that um, was based in New York just to help me with some TV stuff. You know, I wanted to, to branch out on TV more. Um, and I started doing a lot for ESPN, actually. You know, I, I was doing football almost every week and I did a lot of basketball for them. Um, you know, kind of ESPNU and ESPN3 type stuff at that time. And I was, I was starting to make a, a little bit of a move and, uh, you know, I felt good about where I was. But so I had this agent for that and the Mets stuff. You know, he um, he had a client that was that was closing in on getting a job at at WOR, which was the Mets flagship station. And you know, the guy didn't end up getting that job, but he had just been talking to them like, like every day to try to get this morning show host set up over there. And it was a news talk station mostly. Um, you know, they just happened to carry the Mets games too. And then the Mets ended up having an opening for the pregame host. And so the, the conversation was already kind of happening between my agent and the station. And they heard my stuff and they liked it. And they sent it to Howie and he liked it. Um, you know, Howie reached out to Pat Hughes, you know, unbeknownst to me. Uh, but 
he couldn't have reached out to a better person as far as I was concerned because Pat had known me uh, since I interned at WGN when I was in college and he had listened to my stuff a lot over the years and had given me tons of advice and feedback and still does. So for Howie to reach out to Pat, I, I mean, I couldn't have scripted it any better. Um, that was the perfect person for from my from in my standpoint for, for Howie to reach out to. So, you know, Pat gave him a stamp of approval. That was good enough for Howie. They needed someone who could not only do play-by-play, -play, but could host shows and, and kind of fill in and do whatever they needed. They kind of needed a jack-of-all-trades, which I, which I was. So uh, I was surprised to get it only because I'm not from New York. It's, it's a provincial city, but I, I was glad, certainly overjoyed to, to get it. It was everything I, I dreamed of being, and I was uh, pretty young to get, get a job in the big leagues. So I was uh, I was ecstatic, and you know I'm, this is my sixth season with with the Mets. So uh, it's worked out great, and I'm I couldn't be happier about how it's gone. Yeah, you mentioned you can't script it any better. You can't script it any better than starting in 2015. And also for you, you know, you get to ride that whole wave to the World Series of the Mets that year. They clinch the winning the division or the pennant at Wrigley Field, which is a place I've been a lot to growing up as a Cubs fan. Just so, what was that roller coaster like of a season, uh, seeing it all the way to the World Series of the Mets? Yeah, I mean, first year in the, in the big leagues and, and on the planes and traveling with the team. I mean, just kind of taking that all in, how cool that is to begin with. And then, you know, the team was good and, and, and you know, good enough to be in contention um, through most of the season. Certainly wasn't a team that seemed like it was going to the World Series. It seemed like a team that was building toward that with the, with the young pitchers they had. And, you know, Matt Harvey came back and had a very good year. Cindergard had just gotten called up. Mats had just gotten called up. Conforto had just gotten called up. So you know, they had this; these guys who were majorly ready who were going to help them win a pennant, as it turned out, and become you know stable players for them moving forward. Um, and then they made the Yoenis Cespedes trade, and then that's when everything turned. That's when they became a pennant contender. It coincided with with Cespedes doing as well as he did. Certainly the best trade the Mets have ever made in, in the middle of a season as far as, as a trade deadline acquisition. Cespedes was incredible for them. But then Daniel Murphy was hitting above Cespedes in the order. Murphy hit second, Cespedes hit third, and then Murphy started just crushing the ball. And as we saw in the playoffs, turned in a, a historic effort in October. But it was it, it just went crazy. I mean, they just started winning so many games. They beat up Washington a couple of times. They swept them twice in a six-week span to really take control of the division. All of a sudden, there's a lot of champagne, you know. We're in Cincinnati. They clinched the division. I actually worked the division clinching game with Howie because Josh was off. He was doing Charger games. So um, that was incredible. I'm in the clubhouse getting soaked after the game. Uh, we go to L.A. We think the Dodgers are probably going to win because they've got Kershaw and Granke, who both had incredible years. Arietta won the Cy Young Award, but... Kershaw or Granke easily could have. They finished second and third. So, and and with the way the division series was set up with the, with the days off, they they pitched four out of the five games. So it, it seemed like everything was against the Mets, but they found a way. They went back to L.A. They won at Dodger Stadium in Game Five. Another crazy celebration, and then the momentum was just off. They crushed the Cubs in the championship series, and you know it wasn't really much of of a doubt by the time we got to Chicago that the Mets were going to win the pennant. Um, they took care of game three. They smoked the Cubs in game four. 
and it was just so surreal. The most surreal moment of it all was, you know, not not even the fact that the Mets and Cubs were on this collision course to meet in the championship series. It was standing on the pitcher's mound at Wrigley Field watching the New York Mets celebrate winning the National League pennant right in front of me and, you know, being thrilled about it. I was uh, couldn't be more excited to go to the World um, you know, except for the ending, I guess, when the Mets lost to the Royals in, in five games where the Mets could have easily won that World Series. Just a few things bounced their way, and, and they they absolutely could have won it. You know, they, they had the lead in the majority of the innings of that World Series. They just didn't have it at the end of those games because the Royals scrapped uh, to, to fight in the eighth and ninth innings of a lot of those games to win. But uh, it, was, it was unbelievable, and, and the Mets were shaped – it seemed to continue that, you know, they had the young pitchers and uh, they had a, a, enough hitting that it seemed like they, you know, they re-signed Cespedes and they could keep going. But, you know, 16, they got to the wild card and they lost. They got Bumgarnered in that one. And then after that, you know, they really haven't been close. So it, it, I guess I learned not to take those moments for granted that you're going to, you might only get one shot to go to a World Series. And, and I'm glad that I've, I've gotten that and I hope to again. Those first four seasons where you were the fill-in play-by-play, now full-time play-by-play with Howie, how tough was it for you to get in a rhythm where you're doing a every other series or a fill-in game for Josh when he's away doing football? Baseball is such a rhythm sport. It's, it's every day, right? So how tough was that for you when you're doing the fill-in here and there to, to really get in a rhythm and be able to work with Howie the way that you want to? Yeah, it's, it's not easy, um, you know, especially because also Howie would miss games, too. So some of my fill-ins were with Josh. So I had to I had to work with both of them at, at different points. And, um, you know, and there were long gaps. Sometimes I'd go two months without doing a game. You know, it was just it just kind of in that May and June where Howie's not doing hockey anymore and football hasn't started yet. So they're both kind of just there every day. Um, you know, it was, it was for me just trying to stay sharp and, you know, obviously I knew everything about the team. I still covered every game and was traveling with the team. So it wasn't, it wasn't that as much as just trying to find the right spots to, to call games and to make them sound good. Um, you know, I think, you know, I tried to get in as much of a rhythm as I could. It was a little easier in the second half cause I knew I was going to do a lot of games and it wasn't those long spells in between. Um, so I feel like those were probably better than the first half of the season when it was, when it was really just very sparingly, but, um, you know, I was just hoping to, to bide my time until I got a full-time opportunity. You know, I didn't know it was going to be with the Mets. I was planning, you know, at some point that I probably would have to leave if I wanted to do uh, full-time play-by-play and, you know, just happened with the with the switching of the stations from WOR to WCBS and Josh had some other opportunities he wanted to pursue. And it just kind of all boiled up to the point where, you know, I was able to just stay right where I was, which was great. And, you know, last year working with Howie every day was, was awesome. And, you know, I wish uh, we'd, we'd be doing that right now, but hopefully, uh, hopefully soon we'll, we'll get back there and we can uh, pick up where we left off. Any advice that stands out to you that Howie has given to you or maybe a booth over and what Gary Cohen has said to you? Anything that really stands in the forefront of your mind and what they've given you in terms of advice? Yeah, it's funny with Gary because I don't, you know, Gary is great and is one of the best to ever do this. Um, he's not one to give a ton of advice. You know, you more, uh, you always felt like they said that about Ryan Sandberg, you know, he led by example. I feel like that's Gary. He leads by example. I, I've learned a lot from watching Gary, from observing 
him and being around him every day and, and just in casual conversations, not so much him giving advice, just the way that he talks about what he does and, and how he does it and, and what he looks for. So, you know, Gary uh, is, is, you know, both of them, it's, it's been just the ultimate master's level course to watch them work day in and day out. I mean, they are, they don't take any days off uh, in the sense that when they are there, they are 100% there. They give it their all every single day. And uh, they, they have thoughtful questions to ask. They have different ways of viewing the game, different things they want to work into their broadcasts. And there's never a day where they show up at the ballpark and they're like, eh, the hell with it. I don't care what happens or what we say today. Um, they're just not like that. Every day is, is, is the real deal. And it's, it's been a huge learning experience for me to be around them. Howie's the one who will give more advice and, and offer uh, more thoughts. You know, the best advice he ever gave me was when I was filling in for Gary. And I said, you know, I mean, Gary, Keith, and Ron, that's, that's the best booth, TV booth in baseball. That's, you jump in there and you're in the hot seat. I've seen how they've treated some of the other fill-ins and you know Mets fans they don't play with that they 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 want their broadcasters to be good and they want to hear what they want to hear and you know how he said just treat it like it's your booth go in there and act like you do that job every day and I, I that really calmed me down because I was able to go in there and do just that I wasn't filling in for Gary Cohen I was just going to work and doing what I do, and uh, I, I think that I handled it to a point where obviously the Mets fans and the Mets uh, TV people felt comfortable with making me the fill-in guy so that I can I can keep doing that, and you know, I love filling in for Gary. I love working with Keith and Ron. You know, one the one thing, my first spring training game with SNY was with Keith and Ron. Usually I work with just one. But on this day, it was both of them. And I was like, I'm not going to even talk. I'm just going to let them dictate the broadcast. and They can do whatever they want. They're the, they've, they're the ones who've been there. And I was so shocked that when the game started, they waited for me. They wanted me to lead them. They wanted me to kind of do what Gary does, lead them in conversations and ask them questions and, and, and let the broad, quarterback the broadcast, which is really what the play-by-play guy should do, especially in a three-man booth. And I was, it put me at such ease that they trusted me to do that. And I, I you know, think I love working with both of them. They're, they're so, so good at what they do. You know, everybody knows Ronnie's good, and everybody thinks Keith is funny. Uh, but Ronnie is good and he's funny and Keith is funny and he's also really good. You know, I think he doesn't get enough credit for how good of an analyst he is. Certainly a fun broadcast and for you as well, making the transition from minor league baseball to major leagues. Uh, it's a big difference in how the clubhouse kind of feels and kind of the decorum of a major league clubhouse, especially in your first role at the Mets where you're doing the pre and post game shows, grabbing interviews. How did you learn how to navigate a major league clubhouse? Yeah, you know, fortunately, I'd, I had some experience doing it you know, with the Illinois Radio Network. I covered a lot of Cubs and White Sox games. I had filled in at the score doing White Sox pregame. So I wasn't totally in the dark when it came to working a, a big league clubhouse. I, I, had, I had done some of that, and, you know, I know I knew the ins and outs. I talked a lot to, like, Andy Mazur and some guys who'd been in that pregame show interview-type role before, and the importances of, you know, getting to know some of these guys and don't just go up to them when you want an interview and, and just trying to establish those relationships. Now, some guys will make that harder than others. 
Um, but you you know you remember more fondly certainly the guys who make it easy guys like Curtis Granderson, who uh, you know is a Chicago native as well, and we got to talk about that and and just could not be nicer to me uh, to grant me interviews and to just do whatever you know I, I had asked. He was he was incredible and guys now like Brandon Nimmo and Michael Conforto guys who you know you kind of those go to people. You know, I know I don't do the interviews anymore, but I know J.D. Davis and Dominic Smith are becoming those guys for the Mets, too. And it's it's nice. It's calming to have those go to guys in the clubhouse. And for the other guys, you know, you just try to navigate and, and figure out what's what's best for them, you know, what they like. Um, you know, I know Robinson Cano is a guy who just likes when you come up to him and, and, and talk to him. Some guys don't like that. Some guys, you you know want you to talk to them on the field and you know in general i try not to go up to too many guys in the clubhouse i feel like there's enough people bothering them and i don't i don't need to be in anybody's face so if i'm if i'm in i'm out quick and i try to try to give them as much space as they can ordinarily everybody's getting enough space now but i think uh i think you know it's important to let those guys breathe because especially in new york there's there's people hounding them all the time yeah, and how much of that of those conversations really help your broadcast and get on the air eventually? Um, a lot, you know. Some of them, uh, some of them, I won't use for months. You know, I'll, I'll, have a, I'll have a conversation with a guy in March, and all of a sudden something will happen in June, and I'll be like, "Hey, I, that's exactly what we were talking about three months ago." Um, you know, some of them are recurring. I remember Conforto telling me last year that. The only guaranteed fastball count at this point in baseball is three and out. He said normally in the past two and one, two and zero, oh, three and one, you can expect a fastball even three and two. He said there's there's no such thing anymore. Three and zero oh is it. That is the only fastball count. And then Howie and I noticed as the season went along, we were seeing a lot more three zero oh swings than usual. And you know it was easy to put two and two together that knowing if 3-0 and is the only time you know you're going to get a fastball, well, then it makes sense for some of these more powerful guys to swing 3-0 and more often than they had been. You know, for the Mets before, Granderson was like the only guy who swung 3-0. and Now almost all of them do it. So and I think it leads back to that conversation that I had with Michael Conforto last April that kind of recurred through the season, and we brought it up several times. Wayne, how descriptive do you like to get on your radio call what's what's a good balance between too much and maybe not enough i think it depends on the actual play that's happening um on a on a fly ball to left center field that's routine i think you can dress that up you know you can you can describe what the outfielders doing crisscrossing his feet angling to his left sticks his left arm out i think you can do that because it's a slow play um, so you can give that a little bit more flavor. It's a boring, normal, routine fly ball, so you can dress that up. Now, bases loaded, some guy jacks one into the gap, four guys are running around the bases, two or three of them score, and other guys go into third on a relay throw. That's a lot of happening at once, and you have to slow down. You have to, at, at that point, what Pat, what Pat Hughes always said to me was bullet point. You know, you don't want to speak in complete sentences anymore on that play. You want to talk bullet points and when the play's over and you recap it then that's when you can go back and give the vivid detail how many times the ball bounced into the gap you know how fast the runners were going the, the type of slide the runner gave into third base all of that then comes back into the broadcast to paint that picture after the play is done because if you're trying to keep up with that as a play like that unfolds you're going to fall behind and if you hear the crowd 
or you get like get tongue tied and you get lost in what you're saying, you lose the whole play. So it's important to stay on top of the play when things are happening quickly. And then, yeah, when there's when there's not much going on, I think that's when you can really give those vivid details uh, about what's happening. You know, there's only a couple of guys, and I'm in baseball. I don't even think you should try it. A couple of guys in football that are great about giving excellent details while also maintaining the play. You know, Kevin Harlan stands out as a guy who's able to do that. That's in football where I feel like you can you can toss in a couple of those things without losing the play. Whereas in baseball. You know, I'm not sure you can on those quick moving plays because just because there's so many moving parts. You know, the ball's in one place, but the runners are also such an important part of the play. And as the ball moves through the fielders, what's happening? So I think it's important at that point to just kind of give the exact bullet point details of what's going on and then come back with those colorful descriptions later. And vocally, too. That's something that I try to work on a lot by listening back. And it's crazy when you listen back to stuff that you've done from a couple of years ago, just how much your voice has changed and how your presentation has changed throughout the years. But for you, how much is it in the back of your mind vocally where you want to be, uh, you know, speaking from your diaphragm? A lot of people we've had on this podcast have had a vocal coach. Is that something that you've ever done or thought about doing? Yeah, it's, I did it my first year in New York. Um, the my biggest thing, a couple, I had a couple of things that I thought I needed to work on. One was something I didn't even understand. I had trouble breathing on the air. Um, you know, I would just, I would do if I had to do a long segment, I would find myself like having to stop or having to catch my breath at some point, and I didn't really understand why. And it turns out it had. It, they both, the, my two biggest issues, both had to do with the same thing. Um, the other issue I had was I just didn't like my highlights. I, I didn't feel like on the big calls that my voice got up the way that I wanted it to, uh, that I sounded fine, you know, totally fine uh, on everything except for when there was a big moment. And if I learned anything in the transition from minor league baseball to major league baseball is that you have to make the good moments sound big. Um, you know, you, you have to bring that energy, you have to bring the enthusiasm, you, you have to have all of those things working because those highlights are going to go everywhere. You're going to hear them on the MLB network. They want to package them for promotions and commercials. And you're, you know, you're going to hear yourself on some of those calls and they want to use them. They want to, to spark those big moments and put those calls out there. So you have to give it to them. And, I felt like I just wasn't. So, and you know, some people, you know, would say, "Oh, you, you know, you kind of lack, you know, a little enthusiasm." And I, I didn't. I didn't lack enthusiasm. I knew that I was feeling enthusiastic. I thought I sounded enthusiastic. It just wasn't coming across that way. And so I knew that wasn't it. But I understood why people said it was it. And then when I worked with this voice coach who was recommended to me in New York, um, she solved all my problems by breathing differently. Um, she said that singers breathe on certain letters, that they don't have time to take a breath in between words. So they pick letters, B's and T's and P's and C's, the, the, the letters that you really have to get out. Um, those are the letters that you breathe on. And that will allow you to keep going and keep breathing properly. So not only did that fix my, my problem of breathing when I felt like I was getting long-winded, it helped my highlights. For whatever reason, I was able to, to take them to a different level and breathe those letters out and be able to, to speak yeah, more from, from down below and pop those letters a little bit more. 
And it was almost instantaneous once I figured that out, how much better my highlights have sounded. And they've, they've only gotten better as I've gotten used to that and increased, you know, as time has gone on here. So um, I, I thought that that five or six lessons I had with this voice coach were humongous for me and, and really helped me get to the next level that I needed to be at. Yeah, you mentioned uh, the five or six lessons and you got used to it a little bit more. Are there still things on a daily basis or days where you're broadcasting that you feel like you do or is most of it kind of second nature by now with that? No, yeah, I think it's uh, at this point it's second nature. Like I said it was my first year with the Mets, so it was five years ago. And, you know, I, I think there were, I certainly worked at it then. You know, she gave me these charts and things to say and learning how to breathe through the through the letters and all that. Um, so, and I, I found myself, she says you'll notice on certain letters if you're not doing it right. So, you know, M's and N's, you, you should feel that in your nose. You should feel those letters in your nose. But you shouldn't feel other letters through your nose. And if you are, that means you're you're not doing it right. So I'm conscious of it. If I feel I say a, a word and I feel it vibrate in my nose, then I know I'm not doing it. I need to, I need to pay attention. Um, so I, I feel like I'm pretty on top of it. And uh, if I get a little lazy about it, I'll, I'll, I can jump back into it pretty quickly. But you know, there's nothing I do on a regular basis. I know Ryan Rucco says that he does, you know, this this whole uh, seance that he has before uh, before a game. I don't do anything like that. But um, you know, I I, I just um, you know just try to be conscious of, of how it's how it's coming out and what I'm saying. In terms of television play-by-play for baseball, what have you found to be the right balance there? Kyle asked you about radio, but for a TV play-by-play where you're trying to provide more captions, just how much? what are you thinking about as you're calling the game on TV and what you say? Yeah, just trying you know, not to talk, basically, I think is, is the best thing, especially when you're doing a lot of radio and then you have to do TV. Um, you know, Gary doesn't miss many games. He misses like three series a year. Usually they're like in the middle so I'm doing, you know, 80, 90 radio games in a row, and then all of a sudden they plot me on TV. Um, I remember last year, especially my first TV game of the season, I just was like a chatterbox. I couldn't stop talking, um, and I, I noticed it. The producer noticed it. I'm sure Keith noticed it. Um, you know, it was just too much. And then, you know, the second day and the third day, you know, it's always the third day where you feel great. Like you talk the right amount, you you feel like it's 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 going great, and then you know Gary's back, and then you got to go back to radio. So um, it's hard for me to get into that rhythm on TV because I only do nine or ten games a year. But uh, the biggest thing is is just not to talk as much. You know, you let let the sounds of the game happen. You know, Len Casper is so good at that. He he really. He, you know, you could even say Len lets it breathe too much. You know, he he will really let it go. And on a beautiful day at Wrigley Field, it's sunny. There's a lot of chatter from the crowd. Like, you don't need to talk. You can just let the game be. And I think Len is great at that. Um, you know, I, I think that for me, uh, on the actual play calls, when you when you have to say stuff, it's it's just as important to not say nearly as much as you would. You should not give any descriptions. You should not, you know, if Ahmed Rosario is moving to his right, I should never say that on TV. I should never say Rosario to his right. Um, it's you know, I could say Rosario goes to the hole maybe, but I would never say you know he's moving to his right. I think the the less of those descriptions that you can give on TV, the better because you're really just trying to caption what's happening. You're not trying to give the play-by-play necessarily. So 
Um, you know, it's a lot different. There's a lot of balance to it, but I think the biggest thing is is taking 90% of what you would say on the radio and just throwing it in the garbage. Wayne, how much has your overall prep process changed throughout the years? I think I saw on Instagram Live that you you use Microsoft OneNote for baseball. I know Joe Davis and Adam Amin, they both use Microsoft OneNote. Roger does. I do as well. Uh, how much has that process overall just changed from when you started till now? Um, the, once I got the OneNote going, you know, that's been kind of steady. I, I, I think that, you know, for, for those of us who've done it for a little longer, it's good to get to a point where you can kind of just do the prep in your sleep almost, where it just becomes kind of second nature. You know, I, I added a few more things last year as I did the, the full-time play-by-play just because I was doing it day in and day out. So I added a page where I, I have the, you know, just kind of different little game notes, things that I definitely want to use for that particular night's broadcast um, that I have in a tab. I have kind of league-wide things that I'll continuously update. Um, you know, maybe some different stories that I want to add into. Um, it just depends. You know, it's if if something happens that I want to talk about, I want to make sure it's in there um, so that I, I don't forget about it. But you know, as far as the the daily player prep, you know, I try to I do all the med stuff in the off season. And then I'll go, I don't want to get too ahead of it with the other teams because rosters change so much and I don't necessarily want to waste time prepping a guy that I won't even see. So, um, you know, I'll wait a few days out and I'll start getting after the rosters a little bit uh, for the other teams. And then I'll get pretty heavy, especially in the day or two leading up to a new series. You know, 90% of my prep goes into the other team. You know, I want to be able to be up to date on what Washington's doing or what Miami's doing. And, uh, you know, just kind of, I don't want to be caught off guard by anything that's happening with the Marlins, you know, which is not exactly the easiest team uh, to keep keep an eye on. Uh, you know, it's a team that hasn't had much success in the last few years, and uh, they've got a lot of moving parts, a lot of guys coming in and out. So, you know, you just try to stay on top of it as best as you can and, and find little storylines and, and find ways to, you know, make, make, at least make some sense of what they're doing. You know, Jorge Alfaro can't stop swinging your pitches out of the out of the strike zone you know you want to be able to, to tell that story you know Lewis Brinson changed his number you know you wanted to pay tribute to Juan Pierre but didn't necessarily want to hit like Juan Pierre so he's got a new number this year you just want to be able to tell those stories um, and and you know make it sound like you know what you're talking about when it comes to the, the other teams you know, I think there was a, a phrase I always heard at the score they called people out of town stupid that you know you didn't really know what was going on in Chicago you just kind of were took a few headlines and try to make sense of it. And I don't want to be that. I, I want to make sure that I at least have a good sense of what's happening with those other teams. You'll never know it the same way you know your own, but um, at least have a, a better sense than most. What does your scorebook look like? I know when I started with Roger, I was his number two in Jacksonville, and I had the Bob Carpenter just about like everybody else in baseball. And I tried to throw every single number I could into the scorebook. Uh, what What does the scorebook look like for you? Trying to see if I have one nearby. Um, my, we always all keep them around somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I have one that's real close right now. But the um, I've got mine this from this year, which is unused. So I the uh, I use a very color coded score. I don't write a lot of notes in it. First of all, um, I'll put the full names and the number and the position in the lineup. Um, yeah, I'll write it. I'll write it small so that I have some space for extra guys. 
I'll put the defense and I'll put the pitcher and I, I write in the standings and that's it. I, I go. I, I don't I don't put any notes. I don't put their batting averages. I really don't care about batting averages or anything like that anymore. I don't I I used to be so stat heavy and now I am one hundred percent the opposite. I am I am completely done with stats. I just I almost don't care about them at all at this point because for what we're trying to do on the radio and on the on these broadcasts is is tell stories and be entertaining and I don't think anyone is entertained by somebody's weighted on base average. Now I might know it and I might give it to you in a totally different way um, where I'll say based on this stat which means this Ahmed Rosario gets on base the fourth most among shortstops in the National League. But I will never tell you what those numbers are because they don't matter. Who cares? Who cares what his weighted on base average is? It, it matters what it is and relative to everybody else. So I'll try to give you that before I give you any numbers. I don't want to overload you with numbers. I want to be able to say that Ahmed Rosario gets on base more than any other shortstop in the National League, but nobody's going to regurgitate that his on-base average is 360. It doesn't matter. Um, so I, I think I tried to focus on it in those ways. So that's why I don't, I don't really write those numbers in my book. The only time I'll write things in my book as if a note comes along, you know, if there was, if someone stole three bases in a game for the first time in six years, um, I'll put, I'll jot that down in my, in my book. Um, I like that. I like those kind of numbers or stats where you can go back and say, you know, that somebody had a three home, Lucas Duda had a three homer game at City Field and it was the third three home run game at the, uh, at a Mets home game ever. Um, you know, which is I find remarkable for a team that's almost 60 years old. They've, they've only had three three home run games in their home ballpark in their team history. So you know, you, you mention that you talk about the other two times it happened. Um, you know, which one was Kirk Newenheis, and you know, you kind of make a little story out of that. I, I I rather that than than me tell you how many home runs you know Duda's now got off right-handed pitcher this year. Like, who cares? Um, so that's. That's where I'm at with all that stuff. So my book's pretty clean. I like it clean. The only different, the only thing that stands out about my book is that it's completely color-coded. I use green marker for singles. I use orange marker for triples, blue for doubles, red for strikeouts. Um, I use purple for errors. I, I, everything has its own color. So that's where you'll open my book and you'll see this rainbow of, of colors. Um, so you'll, you, you know, it stands out in that way. But again, that's just for when I can glance down and see blue, and I know it's a double. I don't have to. I don't have to say is that a two or a three. I don't have to do anything. I just look at the colors, and I know what, what I've got in there. Talked a lot about baseball. Of course, you're an accomplished broadcaster as well on television, doing a lot of basketball, some football as well. Uh, when looking at those two sports specifically, especially when you're calling a network television game, what's important in your preparation, and what helps you the most uh, before game time? Yeah, I think for basketball, you know, it's so it's it's a lot simpler. You you got the short rosters, and you you really in some cases seven or eight guys that are going to play. So you know, you can really dig in and dig deep on some of those guys, and you know, you try to read the local stories. Um, if I can read a, a good local story, well, I, I did a game last year. It was Iowa, um, and they were playing Illinois, and it was a big game, and. There was just that day in like the paper in like Des Moines. There was a big write up on Luca Garza and what he had done over the summer, and 
you know, his dad and, and him worked tirelessly uh, over overseas, uh, trying to get him prepared and working literally three workouts a day and how they spaced him out. And I love that story. I love being able to tell that story on a TV broadcast because it's just something different. I feel like you don't get a lot of those in-depth stories during a TV broadcast. So I'll try to have a couple of those. Um, you know, Luca's dad was there that day. It worked out. You could show him. Um, I try to have a couple of those if I can for a, for a college basketball broadcast. The biggest thing prep-wise is to know enough about a player so that you can drop something in. You know, for example, if if your analyst is talking about uh, so-and-so is a great shooting touch, and you can say, well, hey, he's third in the Big Ten shooting. That helps. So I, I think being able to play off your analyst in that way is is huge. And I think that makes for good TV that you guys sound in step with each other. Not necessarily asking questions. You don't really have to ask him any questions to sound in step with him. You can just play off. You listen. You can play off of your analyst. I think that's one of the biggest things I've learned over the last few years on TV is really listening to your analysts so that you can kind of back them up in a sense and, and being able to drop in some of those things that make him sound good and make the broadcast sound a little tighter. We've talked before about your friendship with Joe Davis from your Southern League days. You also got to know Adam Amin as well, and you guys have all been tight from trying to make your rise through the business to where you are now. Uh, just how much did you guys help each other back before you were all uh, making it really big in this industry, and how do you guys hope together to help pay it forward in broadcasting? Yeah, we know we helped each other a lot, especially early on. We still do. I think we still lean on each other and, and talk to each other about broadcasting and our theories and ideologies when it comes to it all the time. I, I think that um, it's it's still important to do that because they're evolving. You know, we, we the way, like I just mentioned about how I look at stats, it's a total evolution to how I used to. Um, so, you know, I... I I think we update each other from time to time. I like to know what they're thinking, you know, how they're improving. Uh, I remember Adam on football when he first started on football, you know, he was, he had a long way to go. Like he, he, he certainly had some growing pains as a football announcer and now he's about to start doing the NFL for Fox. Like he's, and he's 100% worthy of doing that. He should be doing that. He's, he's a great football announcer. He's a great basketball announcer. So, you know, it's important as our views evolve to kind of keep each other in the loop about, you know, some of those things so that maybe we want to make those changes too. So, you know, it's been huge to have those guys uh, in my life and, and, you know, to kind of uh, learn from them and they can learn from me. And, um, you know, we, we're always asking each other for advice on how to handle situations and how to handle things. That's lessened as we've gotten to certain points where, you know, we're not looking for many jobs anymore. We're not really looking for that next big thing. You know, we're all pretty satisfied where we are. But, um, you know, I'm sure we'll have those conversations if that ever changes. And, you know, as far as paying it forward, I think that, you know, all of us have listened to different young broadcasters and, and given advice. And, you know, it's, it helped us. That's for sure. We, we None of us would be where we were without people listening to our tapes and giving us advice and giving us honest feedback and, you know, giving us uplifting feedback too. You know, I know Ian Eagle was, was huge for Adam. I know that Len Casper helped Joe a lot. I know that there have been different broadcasters along the way that have helped me. I mentioned Pat 
you know, certainly Lynn was was part of that too. Joe Block in in Pittsburgh gave me some great advice. Um, there's been a ton of different people that I've I've leaned on. Uh, you know, Mike Farron, who, who gave me my first internship, is still someone I, I talk to about the industry. And you know, he's in the, doing big league games now too for the Diamondbacks. So, um, you know, a lot of the people that I was in contact with 10 or even 15 years ago, I'm still in contact with, and there's still people that that I enjoy talking to and and networking with now. Final one for me, Wayne. Uh, overall advice for young broadcaster in college, and this is a tough time to enter the job market, of course, with the pandemic going on. But uh, what they should be doing in college to get ready for this, and then once you know the first few years out of college, how to really attack this career. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is to not be afraid to go somewhere. Uh, I think that you know I, I encounter people that are from big cities. I, I encounter people from New York or from Chicago that want to get into broadcasting, they envision themselves on WGN or on the MSG network or whatever on WFAN. And that's great. And that should be your goal. And that should be where you think you want to be. But you have to not be afraid to go somewhere else. Um, you know, I think for people in New York and, and the bigger markets, you know, it's not, you're not a, you didn't fail if you end up broadcasting in Nashville, like you, that's a good market, a good city. And, a good place to be and and you're making a career in this that's a good thing i think anybody who can pay their bills and and have and be able to live their life uh while doing this has succeeded in in, in some way because it's not an easy industry uh to to work full time in and to be able to make money in and um you know i think you see it on tv you see different type types of people I think what we are seeing now is just in kind of an industry-wide, um, like the net is being cast a little bit wider, I think, and not just in terms of play-by-play, -play, but I think if you turn on ESPN, you see a lot of different types of personalities, people that have uh, been able to, to kind of become rising media stars in sports media. You know, you look at someone like Mina Kimes or Katie Nolan, you know, people that um, have use whatever talent you know Mina was a great writer and, and Katie had done her shows and and try to get through social media to, to get an audience which she did you know there's different ways to do this you can you can do it through a writing platform you could do it through a podcast you could do it um, you know just by having some kind of interesting thoughts and 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 different looks at things you know I, I just don't think you should pigeonhole yourself at all and, and it's kind of what I mean with different markets. You know, if you are from, you know, New York and you get a, an opportunity that's in, you know, North Dakota, I think you should go for it. And I think you should take that opportunity because I think you'll learn a lot from it. Um, you know, it might be difficult to make that adjustment personally, but I think for your career, if, if you really want it, you've got to go for it. And whatever that looks like, um, you know, the more the more you're willing to, to sacrifice to go and do and to try to, to make things happen, um, you know, I think the better the better success you'll have no matter what. Wayne, we're all really excited that baseball is almost back. And as we wrap up this podcast, just what are the next few weeks going to look like for you? And what's the setup going to be like at City Field when you guys do return to the airwaves, both home and road games coming up? Yeah, well, it's today the 8th, so we're 10 days out from the first exhibition game we're supposed to broadcast on July 18th, which will be the Mets and the Yankees at City Field, and then there's a one the next day at Yankee Stadium, which we will be at 
um, for both of those. So, uh, you know, they, they are allowing the radio teams to travel uh, to, to ballparks that are driving distance. Um, and for us in New York, that could mean a lot of different places. But I think that what we're aiming for is to do all the road games from City Field. That's what most teams are doing. Very few radio teams are electing to travel at all. So I think the large majority of the games that we'll be broadcasting will be from City Field, both home and away. Um, you know, just to make sure everybody stays healthy and safe. You know, a lot of the a lot of the players and you know are are in the group of people that are the least at risk for having any problems with coronavirus. You know, I'm certainly in that group too. But you know, my partner's not. You know, Howie's in his upper 60s. Ed Coleman is in his 70s. So. Um, you know, these guys have, have different things to worry about being in, a, in an older group and more at risk for catching something and having problems. So, you know, just to make sure everybody's safe, I think we're going to try to stay uh, in city field if we can and, um, you know, just try to get through this thing. I, we want to make sure that we can broadcast these games. We'll make sure there are games to broadcast, um, you know, just because they're starting doesn't mean they're going to finish this thing. So I, I think that, you know, it's going to be looming over our heads it's looming over our heads now just because they're practicing doesn't even mean they'll get to next weekend so really have to take it one day at a time and and hopefully there's a, a game to broadcast that next day and we'll be able to get as as deep through this season as possible well wayne we hope we get there and we certainly hope to hear you and how we call mets games on the radio i think everyone's truly jazzed up to hear that let's go mets music at the end of every inning break uh, again that's uh, always da, da, a welcome. Da, da. Da, da, da. Yeah, it's always a great sign of summer, but uh, certainly appreciate your time today as you get ready to head back to New York. I really learned a lot from your insights, and it's always great to catch up with you. All right, guys. Appreciate the time. Thanks a lot. All Thanks, right. Man. That was Wayne Rendazzo. Thanks for watching this episode of Broadcaster Hour.